Well, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 7, where we're going to continue to examine Jesus' discussion of John the Baptist. And if you don't have a Bible, you might find one in the pew in front of you, so you can follow along and just actually see what is going on in the text. There's a proverb that says, Two men in prison stood looking out through the bars. One saw the mud, the others the stars. Another proverb says, two women sat looking at a rose garden. One complained that God would put thorns on rose bushes. Another praised God for putting rose blooms among the thorns. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the devil's one object is to, to so depress God's people that he can go to the man of the world and say, there are God's people. Do you want to be like that? Depression, pessimism, Hopelessness, despair, worry, fear, doubt, anxiety are all contrary to God's will for us as believers and are not part of his will. They are listed as sins in the Bible. And they are sinful because they are the result and consequence of unbelief. A failure to believe that what God has told us is true A failure to believe in the promises of God, it is to accuse God of being wrong. It is to accuse God of being a liar, of not being in control, of not giving us what we deserve or what is good for us. And usually we fall into these sins because we have our minds saturated with the world and the problems of the world and what is going on in our lives. It's all about us. Rather than taking our minds away from the mud and away from the thorns and looking at the stars of God's word and the blooms of his word. And this leads to an entire army of sins when we have this worldly life perspective where everything is focused on the here and now and and. The world is sinful, it's corrupt, and of course you're going to get depressed. And then we go out in the world and we're complaining and we're grumbling, and then we have to go up to somebody and say, hey, you want to be a Christian (laughs) and be like me? And this is why as Christians we need to keep our noses in God's book. We need to hear good teaching and preaching, read good books that are saturated with the scripture because it gives us perseverance, it gives us hope, it gives us joy and even in the midst of the most trying circumstances. Missionary William Carey said, quote, I have God and his word is sure and though the superstition of the heathen were a million times worse than they are, If I were deserted by all and persecuted by all, yet my hope, fixed on that sure word, would rise superior to all obstructions. And I shall come out of all trials as gold, purified by fire. We have been keeping our noses in the Gospel of Luke. We've been looking at Jesus... And learning many things about him. And last week we started to look about, look at his teachings of John. John the Baptist is in prison and so he sent two of his disciples to go ask Jesus, are you the expected one or not? And Jesus doesn't 
answer directly. Instead, he performs a bunch of miracles and preaches the gospel to the multitudes. And then in verse 22, he tells them, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And when Jesus says this, he quotes portions of two messianic texts which explained who what the messiah would do when he came and so when those two disciples go back to john who is in prison and they tell him that john would then instantly know beyond a shadow of a doubt that jesus was the messiah because what he was doing was founded in the infallible word of god but apparently like in all large crowds there's fickle people And while John was the talk of the country months previous, now he was in prison. Though many had made that long journey down into the Jordan Rift to hear him preach, he was now in prison. Jesus, on the other hand, was the new hot thing. He was preaching. People were coming to him. He was even doing miracles and John never did that. And so, for I think some of these reasons, and maybe others, Jesus felt it was necessary to do a little defending of John, to remind the people about just who John is and how great he is. And so in Luke 7 through 26, he asks a series of questions. You know, did you think John was some sort of reed? Some sort of Casper Milktoast, spineless jellyfish preacher? And that is why the people made that big journey down there to go hear him? No, he was an oak. He was fearless. He preached the gospel to everyone. I mean, that's why he was in prison. He even confronted the most powerful man in the land, Herod. And did they go down to see him because he was putting on a fashion show? No. He had a sack of camel's hair. The clothing of the poor. And did they go down there to see out his, his, his nice digs, his nice royal palace he was living in? No. I think he was living in a cave. They go down there because, you know, he ate great culinary delights. Bugs and honey. No, they went down there because people had become convinced that John was a prophet. And he was a prophet. And Jesus says in verse 26, he was more than a prophet for three reasons. Not only was he a prophet, one who spoke on behalf of God to the people of God, he was predicted in the Old Testament, which most prophets didn't have the opportunity to have. Not only that, he was the forerunner of the Messiah, which no one had the privilege of being that before. And not only that, he was very godly. And so John was a prophet, yes, but he was more than a prophet. And Jesus goes on, in fact, to say that of those born of women, there has never arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. What a statement. No one ever greater than John the Baptist? This puts John above Abraham, Moses, Joseph, King David, and all the godly men and women who have ever lived. And surely this stunned them. 
to hear how great John was of those born of women. That is everyone. And while none of us are going to be called to be prophets or forerunners to the Messiah, we are all called to be godly. And so last week we looked at five characteristics that John had that we can pattern our own life after. First, we learned that John didn't seek riches, fame, honor, power, influence, or position. Secondly, we learned that John fearlessly and boldly preached repentance to others, showing no partiality. Third, we learned that John denied himself worldly comforts and pleasures in order to obey God's calling on his life. Fourth, we learned that John humbled himself and pointed others to Christ. Fifth, we learned that John was willing to die for the truth that he lived for and in fact did. And this, again, is the godliness of John that makes him great. So this morning we come to the last two points, which we didn't get to last Lord's Day. So let's read the text. We'll look at the last two points, and I think you'll be extremely encouraged. Verse 24, Luke 7. When the messengers of John had left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who are splendidly clothed, lived in luxury, are found in royal palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And when all the people and the tax collectors heard this, They acknowledge God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. So last week we looked at the first example, uh, first principle in the text. John is an example to follow. This morning we come to two more. How you can become greater than John the Baptist was on earth. And two, how you can miss the opportunity to become greater than John the Baptist was on earth. First, how can you become greater than John the Baptist was on earth? Realize Jesus has just stunned the crowd. He's stunned the crowd because he's told them that of all the people who have ever lived, John the Baptist is the greatest. Now in the crowd, there would have been two primary groups, just like there is here. First, there are those who believed John and were baptized. This group would be very encouraged, as we shall see when we get to verse 29. Yet, even among those who did believe in John, I am sure there was probably not one person there in that huge multitude who thought John was greater than any person who had ever lived. I'm sure that thought had not even entered into anyone's mind. Greater than Abraham and Moses and everyone. All the great godly men and women of the past. Secondly, there were those who did not believe John was a prophet. But maybe after they followed Christ, they did become believers. These people would have heard Jesus and probably felt a little ashamed and embarrassed that 
They didn't believe in John and they should have because now they have placed their faith in Jesus and realized that Jesus says John was a great man. And others uh, were probably just still hard-hearted. They didn't believe in John. They didn't get baptized by John. They didn't believe in Jesus. And they didn't want to believe in Jesus. John, they could never accept, was greater than Abraham. And greater than Moses. And greater than David. And greater than all those godly men of the past and women. They, they could not. I mean, look at the guy. He never preached in Jerusalem. I mean, he didn't wear nice clothes. He didn't live in a royal house. He ate bugs. How could he be the greatest man ever born of women? And, you know, that's how our world looks at it. Worldly people look at things that way. Great people are rich people who have a lot of stuff. And here's this preaching maniac in the wilderness the greatest man? I'm sure it has severely offended those who would not believe. Now look at the middle of verse 28, where Jesus makes a statement that is even more astonishing than the fact that John was the greatest man ever born of women. Jesus says, yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Imagine in your mind a pyramid made up of the identities of all the people who have ever lived. Just just think of that. All the believers who have ever lived in the Old Testament and the New Testament time and who are alive today, a pyramid, and their names are make this pyramid. And at the bottom, very bottom of the pyramid, you have people who died deathbed conversions and moments later you know, went to be with the Lord. They were saved just under the wire. They never witnessed anybody. They never served in the church. They never did anything for the glory of God except believe and die. They're at the very bottom. Then you have the very sharp little point. And if you look closely, the name is John the Baptist. Now, where would you be in that pyramid? Where would you be? Think of all the godly men and women who have lived and died and are still living. If you've read much Christian biography, there are just some people who are scary godly. (laughs) And you, you read them and you just think, is this fiction? Could anybody be this godly? And you look at your life compared to that person and you think, oh man, I'm way down at the very bell end of the... The pyramid, I mean, I'm not maybe, you know, I'm not dead. I haven't had a deathbed conversion, but, I, you know, I'm in definitely in the lower strata. And I think most of us realize that, you know, compared to many of the great godly men and women of the past, we're, we're just probably below average. But you need to be encouraged by what Jesus is saying here. You can be at the bottom. You can be that man who gives his life to Christ and then a second later dies of a brain hemorrhage or a heart attack. And you will be greater in heaven than the greatest man ever was on earth. That is amazing. That people is something to ponder on a regular basis. 
especially when things are hard, especially when you have trials in your life, especially when all your world is falling apart and you're sick or loved ones are dying or whatever it is to remember what's coming for believers. Some have interpreted this text to mean that the New Testament believer is greater in John and that he has more revelation than John, which is true. He has the New Testament. And that he knows more about Jesus than John, which is true. And that they are part of the new covenant, which John wasn't, because it wasn't inaugurated until Jesus' death. And you know what? We do enjoy all those things that John didn't uh, enjoy. But that is not what Jesus is talking about. The comparison is not between Old Testament and New Testament saints. The comparison is between John the Baptist living on earth as the greatest man ever born of women and anyone in the kingdom of heaven to come. Jesus is not saying Old Testament saints are not kingdom saints or that present believers are not kingdom saints or that only those under the New Testament and New Covenant are kingdom saints. Any true believer is a kingdom saint. Jesus came preaching the kingdom and telling parables about the kingdom and offering the kingdom. He, at one point, even said, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Do you know why he said that? He said that because in order for the kingdom to be, there has to be the king, Jesus, there he was. There has to be subjects. He had believers around him. And he had to have an area of dominion, which is the earth. So when Jesus was walking around, he was offering the kingdom, but of course... He was rejected, especially by the religious leaders. They killed him. They killed him. So when Jesus walked on earth, he said, the kingdom of God is in your midst because all those elements were present. But for the most part, he was rejected and so was John. Beyond that, Jesus will reign on earth for a thousand years during the millennium. He will have an earthly reign, but even beyond that, the scriptures speak of his reign continuing on after that in the eternal state forever and ever. He has a kingdom which has no end, not just a thousand years, no end. And this is what Jesus is referring to here. He is referring to the final destiny of all who place their faith in him. Any one of those people. I don't care how low on the pyramid as far as earthly works is concerned, will be greater than the man at top was in his pinnacle in this earthly life. Think of the respect Jesus had for John. Think of the character traits that we looked at last week and just summarized this morning. It doesn't matter how long you live or what you do for Christ before dying. If you are truly saved, born again, you will be greater in heaven than John ever was on earth. You will be greater than the greatest man ever born of women. You will. You will be sinless in heaven. You will never want to sin again and you will never sin again. You will never complain. You will never grumble. You'll never be anxious. You will never have a lack of contentment. You will be holy, perfectly holy. And you will be righteous, perfectly righteous. You will love everyone equally without partiality. Hard to believe. But it will be easy. And you won't have to do it, you know, grudgingly. 
Okay, Lord, I'll love them. They'll be easy to love. They'll be perfect. And you'll be perfect. And you'll not only want to love them, you will love them and you'll enjoy loving them. And you will be exalted to a place of authority that just boggles the mind. You, the undeserving sinner saved by grace, exalted beyond your imagination. You, that, that is amazing. Listen to what Daniel seven eighteen says. Speaking of what is to come for the saints or holy ones or believers, It says, but the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. Do you know who that is? Anyone who believes in Jesus. You will possess the kingdom of God forever. Verse 27 of Daniel 7 goes on to say, then sovereignty and dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. Get that. All the glory of all the kingdoms under heaven given to you. 1 Corinthians 6.3 says, Do you not know that we believers will judge angels? Figure that one out. You will judge angels. You'll not only be there when God casts Satan and his angels into hell, but after that, you will have some sort of authority over angels. Holy angels who have never sinned. You, the sinner saved by grace. 2 Timothy 2.12 says, If we endure, we will reign with him. Revelation 3.21, Jesus speaks to the church of Laodicea. And of course, the church of Laodicea is a pretty pathetic church. But he says this to them, He who overcomes, you could put in there, the least in the kingdom, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Now think about that. You remember that little discussion that, you know, the disciples had with their mom? Mom, could you go talk to Jesus and maybe see if you could get him to give us a th- the right to sit on his right and his left in his kingdom? Revelation 3.21. Who's going to be on the throne with Jesus? You are. If you know Christ, you will be on the throne. The throne. The throne is the position of power and authority and sovereignty. You'll be on the throne with God Almighty. If that's not enough, Revelation 5.10, speaking of believers, says, you have made them to be a kingdom of of a kingdom and priest to our God and they will reign upon the earth talking about the thousand year reign of Christ in Revelation 24 it speaks of those who were martyred for their faith during the tribulation coming to life and reigning with Christ for a thousand years and then in verse 6 John goes on to speak of believers but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years Again, in Revelation 22, 5, after the thousand years, after Satan is judged, after the great white throne, after they enter into the eternal state, we are given this promise, and they will reign forever and ever. 
You will. You will. Even after the thousand year reign of Christ for all eternity in the eternal state, you will continue to be royal priests with Christ and kings upon his throne. Because of God's grace, because of Christ's righteousness, because of God's love and his compassion, you will forever be the priceless jewel in his crown. His adopted child. You will have all the rights and privilege of Jesus himself because you will be co-equal with Christ as a child of God, a son or daughter of the king. And even if you gave your life to Christ on your deathbed and died immediately after that, you'll be greater, far greater, exceedingly greater than the greatest man who ever lived on earth. Now look at verse 29. And when all the people and tax collectors heard this, now you just have to stop here for a second. I like what, I like what Luke says here. He says, when all the people, and what, what, who are they? Well, they're everybody from the religious elite, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the rabbis, all of those people. And then all the commoners and the faithful people, the unrighteous people, the everything, everything. He goes, when all the people and the tax collectors. Now, why does he just point out that the only the tax collectors? Because they were the scum of the earth. They were the lowest, most despised, most hated, wretched sinners that anybody ever knew of. Who would be so ruthless and wicked to side with the pagan Romans and for money rob from their own countrymen? You remember that is why when Jesus called Matthew and Matthew had that big party and Jesus went in and he sat down with all of those tax collectors, plural, and prostitutes that the Pharisees and Sadducees had a huge problem with it. And even John the Baptist's disciples thought, what is he doing in there? Those people are sinners, bad sinners. I like it here when Luke just includes, he says, and all the people and the tax collectors, plural, they're all sitting around there, the scoundrels and lowest of society. And so when all these people from the religious elite all the way down to the dregs of society were there and heard that the least person in the kingdom of heaven would be greater than the greatest man ever on earth. Verse 29, they acknowledge God's justice having been baptized with the baptism of John. Yeah! Do you see what Jesus is doing here? Keep in mind, the religious elite are there, the Pharisees are there, the scribes are there, the Sadducees are there. And they rejected John. They refused to be baptized by John. They didn't think they needed to repent and believe. They thought, oh, no way, I'm, I'm good. And Jesus was condemning them for not believing in the prophet of God and not believing in the message of God and not doing what the message of God said. He was saying that the repentant harlots and thieves and drunkards and liars and homosexuals and idolaters 
and fornicators, and yes, even the lowest of the lowest tax collectors would be way, way above the religious elite and even above John the Baptist himself in heaven. (laughs) And you can imagine, that must have just frosted them. Listen, we all need to obey God. We all need to strive to be holy. We all need to take the resources God has given us by his grace and pursue holiness and to strive to be more like Christ. But listen, that does not save us. That does not make God like us. That does not make us great. So that God says, well, there's a great person. I'll save him. No, we do all those things because we were saved and given the resources to do those things out of love to God. And what you need to realize is that Jesus is making a huge, just he's taking the whole thoughts of the Jews here when they thought these Pharisees and Sadducees were so religious. And he's saying, listen, listen to me. The dregs are going to be greater than the greatest man ever born of women. And they, I'm sure all of the dregs who were there just thought, oh, yes. Do you remember in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.20? Jesus said, for I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And what do you think people thought about that? What do you think they thought about that? I'll tell you what they thought about that. They looked at the scribes. They looked at the Pharisees. They thought to themselves, these people are fanatics. They're Bible-thumping, Bible-studying, Bible-memorizing, doers of every little minutia, add all this tradition, and they did all that too. They seemed so absolutely righteous. They were religious fanatics. But Jesus says, listen, You can't even get to heaven if you aren't more righteous than they are. And what people are thinking in their mind is, I have to be more religious than that. No, more righteous than that. There's a difference between religiosity and righteousness. Then, a few verses later in Matthew 5.48, Jesus quotes the verse that I always quote to my children before Lisa and I go on a date and we leave them home alone. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. (laughs) And they always say, dad, no one can be perfect. That's the whole point. I mean, how perfect is God? Kind of perfect, pretty perfect, you know, close to the top. He's infinitely perfect. That's all you have to be. You want to stand before God on judgment day? All you have to be is infinitely perfect. You'll do fine. You have to have a righteousness that not only surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you have to have a righteousness which is equivalent to a God who is perfectly holy. That is as high a standard as you can get. God is perfect. And do you see why Jesus said that? He wants everybody to come to the realization that I can never be like that. I can never be infinite holy. I can never match God's holiness. 
There's no way. The only way I could ever be that holy is if God gave me his holiness. Bingo. Bingo. He was bringing them to a place of despair and complete need and helplessness. And it is only when we come to the end of ourselves, the end of our good works, the end of our goodness, the end of our abilities, and we realize that we are sinners and God is a holy God and he must punish sin and we deserve judgment. That we look to Christ and Christ is saying, hey, I'll take all your sins forgive him and wash him whiter than clothes and I will grant to you, give to you, impute to you my perfect infinite righteousness. How about that? Okay. He is willing to save you, forgive you, transform you, grant you everything you need for God, life and godliness and he does it all by his grace. Christ must make you righteous or you can't stand before God on judgment day. Jesus at the end of the parable of the two sons in Matthew 21, 31 said to the Jewish leaders, truly I say to you that tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. This is the same thing Jesus is teaching in our text. And it's not good works that get you into heaven. It's faith and the word of God preached by the prophets of God, which predicted the coming of the Messiah and Jesus Christ. It is not position, it's not fame, it's not intelligence, it's not money, it's not heritage, it's not that you grew up in a Christian home or went to a Christian school or went to a Christian college or came to church for a long, long time. It's faith in Jesus alone. And that's what saves you. Anyone who believes in Jesus Christ shall be saved and shall be greater in God's eternal kingdom than the greatest man ever was on earth. And that's you. If you know Christ. That is amazing. But if you've never repented of your sin, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you aren't even going to be in the pyramid. You won't even be there. And what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? What, are you afraid you're going to miss out on a little bit of sin? I mean, what are you waiting for? Here on one hand, you have a little temporary pleasures leading to eternal pain and anguish. Or you turn from your sin, you sacrifice some earthly sinful pleasures, you live for God. He gives you his Holy Spirit. He gives you his word. He gives you the fellowship of the saints. He lets you boldly approach his throne to find grace any time you want and help in a time of need. And he promises you that you will be greater in heaven even if you're the lowest guy in the totem pole than the greatest man ever was on earth. What are you waiting for? Why wouldn't you want that? The gospel is that Jesus is the savior of the world, God in human flesh, born to live a perfect life and die for unworthy sinners that he might take their sins upon himself and that he might offer them the free gift of his grace, which is eternal life. So that anyone who placed their faith in him would be greater than the greatest man who's ever lived on earth. God, because he is loving and gracious and merciful, is willing to save you on his terms right now right now and to make you different and to change your mind and to change your life 
so that you're never the same. And so you need to repent and believe and you will become a new creature in Christ and it doesn't matter how big a sinner you are. You cannot out sin. Your sin is not greater than Christ's sacrifice. Your sin is not more powerful than God's grace to save. And even if you're the most despised person in society, even if you're the tax collector of our day, you will be greater in the kingdom of heaven than John the Baptist or anyone else has ever been on earth. And for those of you who have already placed your faith in Jesus Christ and been transformed, be encouraged. Good things are coming. Even though the Bible says that things will proceed from bad to worse as the end times proceed, hey, that means the good things are getting closer. You will have Jesus. You will be a royal priest and a king. You will be on his throne. You will rule and reign with him forever and ever, even over angels. Be thankful, rejoice, be glad, live for the glory of God, tell other people the gospel, have hope. Secondly, how can you miss the opportunity to be greater than John the Baptist? This is apparent. Look at verse 30. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. The religious leaders, the experts in the law of Moses, those who thought they were righteous and holy and had no need for repentance rejected God's purpose for themselves. And they did it in two primary ways. First, they were the leaders of Israel. And they should have been saying, everybody in the country, get down to this guy, John, and get baptized by him. Everyone. And then when Jesus started up, they should have said, everybody in the country, follow Jesus. Instead, they tried to kill him. They persecuted him. They drove him out of their towns. And one of the great ironies that has plagued the church through all the ages is that Satan takes unbelievers who pretend to be believers and makes them the keepers of God's word. And why would he do that? To keep it out of the hands of those who do not know Christ so that they won't be saved and they won't grow in Christ. It's a brilliant strategy. Get people who don't know God to guard the truth. Keep the word of God out of the reach of those who need it. And it's a sorry time when that happens. When they aren't preaching the word, they aren't proclaiming the word, they aren't living the word and sharing it with the masses and with the common people. Jesus said to the keepers of the word in Matthew 23, 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte or convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. They were the keepers of the word. And all you need to do is read church history and you will see that when someone outside of the religious elite tries to get the truth into the hands of the masses and preach the gospel of saving grace and preach truth and preach sound doctrine, what happens? They're persecuted by the guardians of the truth. 
All the way through Israel's history, the leaders persecuted the prophets. The prophets were speaking God's word to them. The prophets were doing miracles. The prophets were telling them they needed to repent and believe and to escape the judgment of God. And they rejected them all. Stephen, in his sermon in Acts 7, said this to the Jewish leaders in verses 52 and 53. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. That was the religious leaders. That was their heritage. What could they say? They couldn't say anything. They knew it was true, so they killed him to add sin upon sin. They had the law. It was given to them through angels. They had the truth. They knew about the coming of the forerunner. They knew about the Messiah and what he would be. The forerunner came just like the scriptures predicted. He did just what the scriptures said he would do. The Messiah came just as the scriptures predicted. He did just what the Messiah was supposed to do. And they killed them both. They killed them both. The keepers of the truth. The apostles then were sent forth by Jesus. The Jewish leaders persecuted them. They all died. Later on, the Roman Catholic Church, the church, evolved into a group of unbelievers keeping the truth. They took off where the Jewish leaders left off and fancied themselves as protectors of God's word. They had the scholars. They had Latin. They had the ancient texts. But what did they give the people? Idolatry, mysticism, superstition, superstition, ritual, lies, works, righteousness. And that's what they led the people into, all sorts of idolatry and salvation by works. But they were the keepers of the truth, guardians of the truth. But they locked it up so tight, no one could get to it. And as Proverbs twenty nine eighteen tells us, where there is no revelation, the people perish. Yet men rose up like William Tyndale and John Wycliffe and Martin Luther. And all they wanted to do is get this book into the people's hands so they could sit like you are today and have a Bible. And what did they do? They killed them and they persecuted them. They viciously attacked them. Today, same thing is going on. But it is spread not only from Roman Catholicism, but to pretty much every major denomination in the world. As they go liberal, they begin to hide the truth and replace it with social action and social gospel and good deeds and funds and drives and building buildings and having organizations for world relief. Where is the gospel that saves people from hell? Oh, well, we don't want to talk about that. Where is the sound doctrine we are called to build people up in? Well, you know, you don't want to do that. That's kind of divisive. And so when someone rises up from their midst and says, we need to preach the truth, we need to preach the gospel, we need to call people to bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance, they're persecuted as being unloving and divisive and wicked. They have, like the unbelieving religious leaders in our text, rejected God's purpose for themselves. And that is the first way they rejected God's purpose for themselves. The second way is individually they would not repent. They not not only failed to fulfill their role as religious leaders, they failed to humble themselves as individuals, as co-equal sinners with humanity. 
They saw themselves up here and other people down here. Instead of seeing themselves on the same plane. And so they wouldn't repent. And that is why Jesus says, the scum of society who believe in me will be over you. And they'll get into the kingdom of heaven before you will. The word translated reject in the NASB means to despise or cast off or to do away with or to set aside or disregard or refuse to place no value upon. And the Greek tense here indicates that they came to a final conclusion that they were not going to believe in Jesus. They were not going to believe in Jesus. It's over. I'm not believing. And that is how they felt about John. And so that is how they felt about Jesus that John pointed to. They wouldn't have him. They wouldn't have him. So what do we learn from this text? Well, John is a man you can follow after for those reasons we stated last week and this morning. The least citizen in the kingdom of God is greater than the greatest man who's ever lived on earth. Alexander the Great, I don't care. Pick any leader, Nebuchadnezzar, whatever. You take any leader, Winston Churchill, I don't care who it is. John the Baptist. If you are even least in the kingdom, you'll be greater than that because you'll have just, (laughs) you will be ruling and reigning with Christ. And third, if you will not repent and believe in Jesus Christ, you will not give God glory. If you will not live your life for him, you are rejecting God's purpose for your life. You're rejecting his purpose for your life. And what you need to do is you need to repent and believe. Do not walk out this door saying, I've heard the truth. I know what I need to do. But God, I do not want to have Jesus reigning over my life. Do not go there. In many instances, after hearing the truth enough and rejecting it enough, you rust in that position. And there's no hope. So today is the day of salvation. Come to Christ and know that even if you're the lowest person in the pyramid, you'll be greater than anybody has ever been on earth. And praise God for it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us and just how you have loved us and saved us and called us to a holy calling. And Father, beyond that, what an amazing statement you have made to encourage us and to even encourage the most despised people of society that you will make all believers great. And then in doing that, they will be able to give you glory for all eternity. Father, may we long for that. May we live for that. May we keep our mind off of the mud and thorns of this world and keep it on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.